After the Monuments is proud to thank Team Henry Enterprises for their support of our show. Team Henry Enterprises is a black-owned contracting firm specializing in office, retail, medical, multifamily, and higher ed construction of all scopes and sizes. In the wake of the George Floyd protests, Team Henry is the very firm contracted by the city of Richmond to take down the Confederate monuments in Richmond, and by many other municipalities to remove other Confederate monuments around Virginia and throughout the Southeast. Learn more about Team Henry and how they can help your company rebuild, renovate, or design at TeamHenryENT.com. I'm Kelly Lemon. And I'm Michael Paul Williams. And welcome to the After the Monuments podcast, where we look at events and news about race in a historical context and see how, too often, history repeats itself. In this episode, we are going to cover all the things about the history of the monuments. And Michael Paul, like why we're doing this in general. So I'm going to throw it to you first off by just explaining. Let's, let's, let's talk about the history of the monuments. How did we get here? <laughs> we got here the same way we always get here. Those monuments did not go up directly after the Civil War as an homage to Confederate soldiers. Okay. Those monuments went up, um, the first one in 1890, as a reassertion of white supremacy and the prevailing social order. They were a statement that we're back. Mm. And you can only imagine how people who were emancipated uh, less than a generation prior felt when they saw the massive Lee Monument going up. Mm-hmm. Was Lee the first monument to go Lee, up? Lee was the first one, okay. 1890. Okay. Um, the others would follow, um, Jefferson Davis, Stuart, Maury, so forth and so on, into the 1920s, into the late 1920s. Mm-hmm. This was not a coincidental period. It coincided with what was called the Black Nadir. The Black what? The Black Nadir. Nadir. Yes. Okay. The, a low point obviously other than enslavement, where the tremendous gains that were made during Reconstruction, where people who had been enslaved held office, held political office. We, we populated the Virginia legislature. We, we, we populated Congress. We established businesses, hardly anywhere more so than Richmond and in Jackson, Jackson Ward, Ward, where we yeah. had the first bank chartered by a black man established. Mm-hmm. And the first bank chartered by a black woman. Yeah. The original Black Wall Street, you might call it. Yeah. Reconstruction, the Reconstruction history that I got, a little younger than I am, so maybe <laughs> you got a better brand of history, but the Reconstruction history I got was that Reconstruction was this massive failure plagued by carpetbaggers and scallywags. Mm. The fact was, it, it was a success that if allowed to continue and if the nation hadn't gotten in the way of the realization of full democracy for all its citizens, would have created a much different America today. So the monuments were the embodiment of that. In a little more than a decade after the the first monument went up, we had the Virginia Constitutional Convention in 1902 that essentially stripped away all those rights that black people had achieved, uh, just destroyed the black vote in Virginia. And, and all sorts of rooted punitive measures, such as disenfranchisement of people who um, were convicted of felonies and all, all of that stuff is rooted back then. Yeah. And this still lives with us, still lives with us, us today yeah. and, and still plagues us today. And let's talk a little bit more about Monument Avenue. I mean, it, was it named Monument Avenue after Lee was put up? 
before well, Lee was put up? And, and tell me this, because again, one of the things you said is your learning versus my learning versus really what's being taught, yeah. you know, right now. You know, I just learned that, I mean, it was very intentional that that street was placed and built so that blacks could never go down it or never wanted to be a part of it. It was established as a whites-only real estate development. (laughs) The monuments were the hook. There's always the capitalism piece in there, too. (laughs) The monuments were the hook for this whites-only exclusive real estate development in what was in Richmond suburbs. Mm -hmm. You can't exercise that spirit easily. So we're talking about something that was created in the late 19th century with that in mind. Well into the 20th century and into my lifetime, that spirit prevailed. Mm -hmm. In my childhood, well into my young adulthood, I didn't spend any time on Monument Avenue. What would be the point? Why? Yeah. Um, And you are from Richmond. One of the things that I want to make sure to the audience that isn't understanding why we are talking Richmond, why we are talking Virginia, American history, Mm -hmm. black history, the the whole falsehood of the the Confederacy in general. It's all birthed right here. And and you experienced it your entire life. So back to what you were saying. Yeah, I, I was born and raised in what was then called the West End of Richmond. Okay. Um, we now call it Bird Park. Okay. Um, half a block from Fountain Lake. Mm-hmm. And all of uh, these places that you're naming are historical places in Richmond that also had monuments as well, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Give it some background. Some, yeah, yeah. There was, there was yeah. a monument to Christopher Columbus in yeah. Bird Park. <laughs> that came down real easy, too. Um, yeah. We took that one down. It wasn't just Confederates. Yeah, yeah. In first grade, I attended a parochial school, cathedral, in the fan district. Mm-hmm. So I was very proximate to Monument Avenue. It's not like I lived in a place that, you know, was distant from Monument Avenue. I could hardly get from point A to point B, say Richmond's north side, without crossing Monument Avenue. There was a big Sears Roebuck department store on Broad Street. Mm. And that would be the time that I would see Monument Avenue, however briefly, when, you know, we were just heading north to cross over to get to Broad. But it wasn't until um, I remember attending my first Easter parade. I was in my 30s. I was in my early 30s when I ventured over to Monument Avenue for the Easter parade. The 10K was really the most time I'd ever spent on Monument Avenue when I started doing that. Okay, because you were a participant. I was a participant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was kind of like, you know, this was this wonderful event, 30,000 people in Richmond coming together to do this. I'd walk it with my wife or one one time I actually ran it. And you just kind of, you know, okay, the monument, just kind of pretended they weren't there. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to let them ruin it. Yeah. This story, this true story tells you everything you need to know about the seeming permanence of the white supremacist monster mindset on Monument Avenue. In the 1990s, a black man who worked at St. Mary's Hospital, which is on Monument Avenue, Monument and Libby, was walking home from his night shift on Monument Avenue and was arrested by police and charged with disturbing the peace. Because mm, he was walking home from work. Walking home from work on mm-hmm. Monument Avenue. Mm-hmm. Didn't never heard that he was making a ruckus or anything. He just was picked up. In the up 90s. In the 1990s. Yeah. And this actually went to trial. Oh. And <laughs> the judge asked him, "Why do you walk on Broad Street now?" Which mo- is which is actually a, what, two a couple or three? Yeah. a couple of blocks to the north. Yeah. But Monument Avenue is every bit the public thoroughfare as Broad Street. What difference would it make? That shows you the mindset that this was not a space for us. Yeah, yeah. And then to get into like 
my generation, and I'm mid-40s, when I first moved to the Richmond area, I'm from Tidewater, there were streets that you learned. You definitely learned Broad Street, mm-hmm. you learned Midlothian, mm-hmm. you learned Parham. Mm-hmm. But Monument had a had a tie. It, it got you to the West End, mm-hmm. where University of Richmond and all of those, those places were. And to, to, same thing that you said kind of about how you ran it, you just don't look up, you know? Like, you just take the road because it's the road. Mm-hmm. But I will say this. I would look up at Arthur because I owed Arthur that. Oh. Arthur Ashe, um, is Richmond legend, tennis legend, is on Monument yeah, Avenue. We need, we, need, we need to get into that history, too, we, because we, that's I a thing, we, too. I hope we do. I really yeah. hope we do. And so I would look up just to pay honor and respect to him. Then my head went right back down. Yeah. And just to get to where I needed to get to. Same thing. I went to Easter on Parade um, because at the time, Venture Richmond was in charge of that program. And I had a relationship with Venture Richmond. And I got invited to a house. That was on Monument Avenue. Mm-hmm. I have also been to, and, I, and I'm not quite sure if it's the only black house, but uh, Melody Barnes and Marlon mm-hmm. Buckner's home. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, are they the only black home uh, on Monument Avenue? I, that I don't know. Okay. I, you know, I don't know any others. Okay, yeah, right? So let's assume, right? And so that is the first time I had been in a house. And that's been two years ago, like right before... Mm-hmm. Uh, the pandemic hit. So when all of this went down, and I think that's where I want to go with you now, because this podcast is about not only the fact that they were up and how much of a backlash it was when they went up, but now that they've come down, what that backlash is and what was happening when they went up is the same things that are happening as they are coming down. Yeah. Can we get a little bit into your thoughts about them coming down and how Richmond was such a focal piece after the murder of George Floyd, your writings about all of the things that were happening at that time? Can we talk a little bit more about that? Richmond, prior to all this, had a reputation as a hotbed of social rest. It was it was just a joke that this was a place where things did not happen regarding social justice, civil rights. It's inaccurate, unfair. We have a long history of resistance in Richmond. John Mitchell Jr. and Maggie L. Walker led a boycott of Richmond's electric streetcar system in the early 1900s, 50 years before the Montgomery bus boycott, and they bankrupted that system. They sure did. (laughs) So people were doing things in Richmond. You might argue Richmond was a brain trust of the civil rights movement with Oliver Hill, Spotswood Robinson and a number of other lawyers who were at the forefront. Hill and Robinson were among the lead lawyers in Brown versus Board of Education. Thurgood Marshall, of course, um, is renowned for, for leading that effort, but um, there were more litigants from Prince Edward County advised by Hill and Robinson than, than any other case. They just, they just did it in alphabetical order. Yeah. So Brown is what we remember. You know, there's always been that history in Richmond. Why um, wasn't it told, though? Like, I know, I know all of we're what, learning. Yeah, and, and I guess what I'm... What I you mean, can't teach stories of black resistance. Yeah. 
of it because people might get the wrong lesson from that. Well, we teach him too much of the what? What, what was was the, uh, the, the the slaves were happy? Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know what the textbook said. <laughs> the slaves were happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, into into when I was in school into the 1970s, Virginia textbooks said the slaves were content and well treated. So you know, we still don't know the half of what happened in Richmond. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Richmond had that reputation, and a lot of us bought into it. And for a long time, I bought into it. And I mm. must say, I did not foresee Richmond becoming a focal point of the social justice movement after George Floyd was murdered. I didn't see the whole national thing happening. I, I know that the video of his 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 murder, his mm-hmm. his execution, it was almost like a snuff video. It was yeah. so perversely horrid to witness. I figured Minneapolis was going to jump off. Maybe a few other larger cities. I did not see Richmond. Yeah. And so when all hell broke loose here. I was I was caught off guard, and mm. I remember going down to the, the boulevard and seeing the the scorched headquarters of the Daughters of the Confederacy, mm-hmm. and what had happened with the monuments, the graffiti, and I'm like, whoa! You know, Richmond had yeah. changed. Richmond was changing in plain sight. Yeah, and we weren't surprised at all. Yeah, like I, we were. I think my generation was we knew that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Black, my generation, mm-hmm. did not expect to see that many white folks. Yeah, I think that, that was, was that was something that else. That was our shock, and then. We also didn't know if we believed it, right? And mm-hmm. then, like you said, all of a sudden, everybody is gathering in Richmond. And so why are we the focal point? Oh, because of the monuments. Yeah, we're, we're like a Hollywood set piece for white supremacy. <laughs> why wouldn't that happen? Not a Hollywood set piece. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, yeah, but... Again, like you said, I mean, you couldn't you couldn't find a more fitting backdrop to protest. The, the symbolism was just so hideous. The conversation <laughs> was already happening, though, about taking the monuments down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. However, we don't know if our leaders. Do you think that they were like, OK, here we go now. Like, this is the time we can do this now. If that didn't happen, would would we be here? What did, what did Martin Luther King Jr. say about the tranquilizing drug of gradualism? We were ODing on that. We were mainlining gradualism in Virginia. <laughs> I mean, you saw what was happening. We had a commission. First, we had a commission established that initially did not have monument removal on the table. And it took Heather Heyer being murdered in Charlottesville during the white supremacist rally for that to change. Then the commission recommends removal. But, you know, and then we have um, a turnover in the legislature and finally... Uh, a majority, a Democratic majority, that was more in tune with that because Republicans were resistant to, to even placing context on Monument Avenue, yeah. just utterly resistant. But still nothing, I, I'm still convinced, nothing would have happened fast. The commission recommended removal of the Jeff Davis statue. That would have been a fight, probably would have gotten tied up in litigation. I am unconvinced that any monuments would have been removed if George Floyd hadn't happened to this moment. We would, be, we would still be talking about it, I think. Let's keep the, 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 the conversation going about the, the what ifs and the what happens and, 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 and all of that in terms of the next move for these monuments. And, and again, making it more national. We are right here in Richmond. We are right here in the state of Virginia. However, all of what we're saying has a larger global, sometimes, you know, scope to this. The Black History Museum of Virginia, Mm -hmm. along with the Valentine Mm -hmm. Museum, was awarded, given, I don't know what word to use, the Lee statue. Mm -hmm. The pedestal. Pedestal. And I guess the statue, too. What do we do with it? What does giving it to those types of organizations mean to you? How do you feel? It's a complicated question. A lot of people were in their feelings about 
the leap had also been removed. And that site had been totally reimagined, reinvented. And so um, for those that don't know, it became um, an art and expression piece and renamed um, the Marcus David Peters Circle for a teacher in Richmond that was killed by um, Richmond police as he was dealing with some mental health issues. Yeah. And now we have an alert now that mm-hmm. has been, you know, I guess, produced because of that. But again, just wanted to yeah, give some yeah. background of, of, of how yeah. Richmonders took it over. Yeah, it became yeah. a space, a, 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 a memorial to victims nationwide of, mm-hmm. of police violence and inclusive Space populated on the regular by folks playing basketball, growing produce to give away. At night, we'd have these wonderful events. We'd have we'd have dancing. We'd have singing. We'd have images of black freedom fighters projected upon the pedestal. It it became um, it was named by New York Times Magazine as uh, among the top protest statements. So people became very attached to that space. Had you um, walked on that grass? Had you walked on that grass? Very, very seldom and always work related. And it wasn't just me. That's that's the the, the thing that wasn't just uninviting to to African-Americans. You seldom saw hardly anyone. You know, you might drive by and see a single like a solitary sunbather mm-hmm. lying out there. It, yeah. it just, people did not gravitate to the spot. This never, wide, this grassy circle. But yeah. That was the first time yeah. I had ever walked on that grass. Yeah. And like, I was, I still was, it was still, I, I know it was reclaimed, but he was still standing there. Yeah. So it was still eerie to me. Yeah. I didn't like it at all. And I was, I was in and out very quickly. And people yeah. would ask, are you going back to the circle? Are you going back to the circle? And I, I just didn't. Yeah. Yeah, I just didn't. I, did, I, I didn't feel that I was supposed to be there. I got a totally different energy when I was out there. So I, I understand why people, when, when they took up the pedestal, there were people who were like, we want this pedestal to, say, to stay. Once the politics in Virginia changed with the November election and the new administration came in, Republican administration, I was like, you got to get that pedestal up. <laughs> I understand how your your attachment to it. It's a whole new ball game now, and you've got to understand this. And I'm get it up, yeah. Get them all up. We're in the process of taking them up now. Get them all up. We're in the Empire Strikes Back mode, where yeah. where people are trying to roll back that clock, and make no mistake, there are a substantial number number of folks in their feelings about the removal of those monuments. Mm-hmm. So. Take them away. Get them out of the public sphere. Put them in a museum. I'm fine with that. Okay. There's a, a certain amount of symbolic justice in them be- becoming owned by the Black History Museum and Cultural Center of Virginia. Yeah. But, yeah, they need to, they need to go. Um, I think that we can't, I mean, to me, the idea that given the change in the political environment, not just in Virginia but nationally, that that would stand, I think was like doing, uh, like, an end zone dance at the 15 yard line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and let's 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 talk about the quarterback, the the, the man that took him down. I, the feeling that he must have, and we're talking about Devon Henry of Team Henry Enterprise, mm-hmm. a black man and his company mm-hmm. got awarded the right to take them down in Richmond. The realization of a prophecy mm. by the aforementioned John Mitchell Jr., who was the fighting editor of the Richmond Planet, black newspaper back in the day, who staunchly opposed, again, there was always resistance, who staunchly opposed the erection of that monument in 1890 and said they would leave a legacy of treason and blood, which if you saw the January 6th insurrection, you know exists to this day. 
And he also predicted that black man put this monument up, and should the time come, the black man will take it down. It just, yeah, and, you know, like that, that alone. I mean, and and again, history in the making that's repeating itself. Yeah, yeah. That is, I mean, it's just the circle. None of this is new. And, and that's what we need to understand about these monuments and those of us who would view them maybe overly so as merely symbolic. What we are living today is the environment in which those monuments went up in the first place. Mm-hmm. Every period of black progress in this nation has been followed by a period of white backlash and yeah. resistance Give me some to examples. that progress. Give me some examples, but not giving away what we're going to get into. But give me some examples of that. Emancipation and Reconstruction were followed by a violent white Southern backlash that the United States ultimately capitulated to, pulling its troops out of the South and, and launching a reign of terror that manifested itself in places like Richmond and or in Virginia with that constitutional convention that stripped us of the rights that we had just won yeah. decades earlier. The most recent backlash, remember the election of Barack Obama yeah. and, and people saying, well, this, now we're in a post-racial America. Well, how does that look now? Mm. Yeah. It's been ever thus in periods of American history where, you know, our progress, the progress of the civil rights movement back in the 60s begat us Nixon and then Reagan, who pretty much announced in starting his presidential campaign in, outside of Philadelphia, Mississippi, the site of one of the most brutal murders during the civil rights era, Goodman, Schroener, Cheney. Ronald Reagan starts his presidential campaign there and says, I believe in states' rights. You know, there have always been these signals. We're living it again today. I'm so glad that we're going to be able to unpack a lot of this within these next seven to eight episodes of After the Monuments. Again, looking at the past and how it's relative to the future. And your writing, I mean, you know, again, giving context to to why this is so important. You've won the Pulitzer for your writing in 2021, just about just race relations in general. From when the pandemic and the race war started in Richmond, do you feel like your writing's changed at all? Do you feel a difference in what you're saying now? I've been writing columns for three decades, and, you know, a lot of this is not new subject matter for me. I've always written a lot about race and the role of race and, and racism in, in Richmond and Virginia and America and how we have to, um, this is a legacy that we must contend with if we're ever going to be whole, black people, white people, everyone, um, you know, racism is not just something that afflicts black people. This nation won't survive, in my opinion, unless we deal with it. And in that light, what's different is I feel an added sense of urgency now. Okay. Because of everything. Everything that we're going through. The moment of racial reckoning. The pandemic, which um, has borne a, a devastating toll on all Americans, but... Um, particularly uh, black people, Latino people who have borne um, uh, a legacy of racism that makes has made them in many ways more vulnerable mm-hmm. uh, to the virus. The sixth state of democracy in our country, democracy is on life support, and which lends a greater sense of urgency to all journalists, I would hope, because we may very well end up being the last line of defense. It feels like that right now. And I'm not a young man. So, you know, how much longer am I going to be doing this? Mm. So, yeah, I feel what I do feel and and what my writing may convey is a greater sense of urgency because we do not have the luxury of that aforementioned drug of gradualism. We've been addicted on some things that 
um, like any addiction, are taking this country down. You can't stay addicted to the drug of white supremacy and expect America to be whole. You can't stay addicted to the drug of wealth inequality and expect America to survive. You can't stay addicted to the drug of health inequality uh, and not view health as a human right rather than something that only the employed have a right to. So yeah, we've got to deal with all of this. Yeah. If we are going to remain the ideal nation that some of us have fought for and have always been fighting for, and ironically, some of us who were on the outside of that dream, on the outside of that vision, have come to value it the most. It's serious. It's always been serious, but Right now, it's urgent. I mean, that ticking clock has gotten louder. This is the After the Monuments podcast with Michael Paul Williams and Kelly Lemon. We just gave you guys the overview of why this podcast is even important, why we are even doing this. And next, we're going to get into the topics that we're going to discuss over these next couple of weeks and a little bit into the conversations that we'll be having uh, with the guests. We're not going to give them the guests yet um, because... We're crossing our fingers on some, but we're definitely going to get into the topics. After the Monuments is a Virginia Video Network production and produced by Matt Pacilli, Michael Paul Williams, and me, Kelly Lemon. Technical direction and editing from Bill Barksdale. Executive production from Paul Farrell, Diane Salvatore, and Paige Mudd. Will Royer provides studio support. Our artwork is by Krishna Mathis. I'm Kelly Lemon, and we'll see you next week on After the Monuments.